I think it's interesting that, you know, we gather week after week after week and we recite the Shema. And, uh, you know, oftentimes you think of whether it's scriptures that you've memorized or prayers that you have memorized or recited. Maybe some of you grew up with catechisms. So oftentimes those, those things become just just something that we recite and we don't allow that to kind of get in us. I'm excited about Christmas. If you've been listening to SWAT radio, you know we are fully embraced in Christmas because on our breaks we're playing Christmas music. One of the things I, when my daughter Sarah, who we just prayed for, uh, was two years old, we decided starting in Thanksgiving that we would recite Luke chapter 2 to her. And so we would open the Bible and we would just read that text in Luke 2, 1 through 14. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, this tax, you know what I mean? And we did that for about 20 days. And at a little over, well, at almost three years old, she could, she could literally recite that whole text. But how often is it that we recite something and we don't allow it to get in us and to do a work in us? And look at, look at what it says in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 6. And these words, in other words, the words that Moses just spoke, that I command you today shall what? Be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. In other words, all day long, right? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You get the point here? Moses is addressing... the new generation of Israelites as they prepare to enter the promised land. And he doesn't want them to simply recite these things. He wants them to live these things. These words are to be on their hearts, on their lips, on their hands, on their feet, on their mind, and over their home. These words were for a nation, but they're for us today. And that's why we recite this. How are we doing at loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? How are we doing at loving our neighbor as ourself? Well, I pray that these words would be on our hearts, that they'd be on our lips, they'd be on our minds and over our homes. And I pray that we would teach them diligently, diligently to the next generation. I pray that these words that we recite week after week after week are not simply something that's just memorized, but it's applied. And that we would use that as a reminder to disciple others. Disciple others. With that said, now turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Remember that Mark wrote this from Peter's account of Jesus' life to encourage these young Christians in Rome who were facing persecution. Sounds familiar with with what Moses was doing. Mark's gospel is primarily focused on Jesus as the servant king. 
Anyone remember the key verse in the Gospel of Mark? It's found in chapter 10, verse 45. You know it. For even the Son of Man came not to what? To be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. The very first verse of Mark's Gospel records this. The beginning of the Gospel. The euangelion, which we've been talking about. The euangelion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then Mark goes on to share how God revealed, number one, a king who identifies with his people through obedience and baptism. Number two, God reveals a king who intervenes for his people. As the heavens are torn open, the Spirit descends as a dove, and it's declared from heaven that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And number three, it reveals a king who ensures hope for his people as he's driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted In other words, the hope is found in the one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he's without sin. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the kingdom gospel. Doug and I went through a book over the summer called The the Kingdom Disciple, or The the Gospel Disciple, and... uh, One of the things you see in part one that we looked at was we learned about the kingdom of God and the different kingdom domains. In part two, we looked at repentance, what repentance is and what repentance isn't. It's not a change of mind about who Jesus is or a desire for new circumstances in your life. It's a new life that embraces the rule and the reign of King Jesus over your life. It includes a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of direction. It's a a surrendering of self-rule to Jesus' rule. It's It's a trusting in Jesus for our forgiveness of sin, which results in a changed life. In other words, if we are His, we have professed faith in Christ, our life is going to look different today than it did last year. The guys that I spent the weekend with in Fort Worth at the TCU football game could could definitely see a difference in me than when I was in college. They they resurrected all these old stories about me. And I I kept going, shh, my wife's here. I don't want her to know what I used to be like. But the reality is, if we are surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, your life is going to look different. There is no Christian life without repentance. And in part three, we looked at the very word believe. Believe. It's not simply believing in a set of facts. It's a surrendering. It's a a complete reliance and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I used this analogy uh, when I was on the radio with Doug the other day. When I was teaching, some of you know, Dave probably knows, that I have five kids. All five of them were very high-level swimmers. Uh, two, the, the two on the bookends were all-American swimmers in college. Well, they, they didn't learn that from me, but I still remember to this day every one of them learning to swim because I made them jump off the edge of the, of the pool. 
And as I stood on the edge of the pool, you know what they were doing? As I'm sitting in the pool, and they're probably one, one and a half years old, I've got my hands out like this. They know their dad. But here, here's what happened. Is they would stand on the edge of the pool. They're, they're wanting to jump to me, but their mama is right over here. And they're, they're torn between who to look at. And that's the way we often are. That trusting in Christ is not just believing in the facts about Jesus. It is a complete reliance and dependence on Him. Here's the fact about us as men, and I'm sure I may get an amen or two here. We are a needy bunch. <laughs> right? I've been walking with the Lord. Dave, you've been, what are you, 40 years, 50 years? How long have you been walking with the Lord? Just 40. 40 years? About 38 years, 39 years for me. And every day I'm reminded that I am a man in need. I am a desperate man in need. The gospel, the euangelion of God, is that God forgives sinners. And as Paul says in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. In other words, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've been delivered from one kingdom into another kingdom. Your allegiance is to a new king, and your life should reflect His rule and His reign. Now, i got to be honest, this is not a popular view of the gospel in our day. You know, unfortunately, many in the church prefer a forgiven-only gospel. It's a distorted view of what Christ has done on the cross. He didn't take on my sin so that I would remain in it. Forgiveness is only part of the truth. And in part 4 from last week, we looked at Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, the parallel of Luke 9, 57 through 62, and learned what it means to follow. What does it mean to follow? And we looked at the motivation to follow. We looked at the cost to follow. And we looked at the benefits of following. And finally, this afternoon, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, let's take a look. I'll read through it. We're also going to look at a parallel passage in Luke chapter 4. But let's look at, the, let's look at Mark's... Uh, writing here in chapter 1, verse 21. And, when, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Verse 23, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Verse 26, And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. 
verse 28, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Interestingly, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 4, Mark is kind of laying these blocks as we go through this text, as we go through his gospel. It's these massive blocks that he's just stacking one on top of another, like building a brick wall. But when you look at Luke's gospel, Luke is what I call, he's, he's filling in the gaps. He, he, he's putting the mortar inside the blocks. So he, a little more detail behind what Luke has to say. Luke chapter 4, let's look at this parallel passage beginning in verse 16. We'll go down to verse 37. Good lengthy text here. Um, verse 16, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Verse 23, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of, prof, uh, in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Verse 28, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now verse 31 is the parallel passage. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is 
this word. For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out, verse 37, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his word. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, uh, back in verses 12 and 13, he leaves no doubt that Jesus has authority over Satan as the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. And both Mark and Luke record the first of several accounts where Jesus exercises authority over demons. And the passage begins by saying that they went into Capernaum. They, of course, meaning Jesus and those who were following as his disciples, they went into Capernaum. Anybody who's been to Israel with Doug? Okay, about half of you. Uh, you, you visited Capernaum, I'm assuming, right? Um, it, you know, it's so interesting. We probably spent a few hours in Capernaum. I, I really want to go back. It's, it's like if you. If you've been on those trips, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. And, and it's like, man, stop. I just want to gather this in. What, what happened right here in Capernaum? It goes on to say that immediately on the Sabbath, he, being Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. In fact, Luke records that he went to the synagogue as was his custom. So this is a, this is a routine thing. In fact, Synagogues were really local meeting places uh, during the intertestamental period. Uh, interesting fact, synagogues are never mentioned in the Old Testament. Think about that. Synagogues are never mentioned in the Old Testament. Why would that be? Anyone, anyone know why? They had the temple. They had the temple. They didn't need synagogues, right? When Israel went into Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C., there were no temples. And so they started meeting in little small groups to have a common place of worship and instruction and to keep their traditions and values alive. In fact, the word synagogue really means to come together. Do you ever think you were in a synagogue right here? It's, it's, it means to come together. And when the Jews returned under Nehemiah... They continued this practice of meeting in synagogues. It's estimated that there were a little over 500 of these synagogues spread throughout Jerusalem. Again, if you've been over to Israel with Doug, you visit some of these old, you know, where they would have gathered uh, to read the Word of God. Uh, They were like, I think they were like local churches, little local assemblies. And this is where they would gather to hear the Scriptures read and taught And it was always on the Sabbath. Faithful Jews and God-fearers were products of the synagogue. Just as most of us are products of the synagogue. We're products of the gathering together around the Word of God. In Luke's record, it reads that Jesus went to the synagogue. He opened the scrolls and read from Isaiah 61, announcing that He was Messiah bringing redemption to Israel. However, the people went from amazed at what he was saying to wanting to kill him. They go from amazed to we've got to kill this guy. So after being rejected in Nazareth, Jesus comes to Capernaum. 
the, these synagogues really provided Jesus kind of a ready-made spot to teach and to explain the Scriptures. And as we move through the text, we're going to see that God reveals three things. Number one, demons are terrified of the affirmation of God's Word. Number two, demons are terrified of the arrival of His judgment. And thirdly, demons are terrified of the authority of God's Word. Mark's focus is not on the content, but on the reaction or the response of his teaching. And it reads in verse 21 that Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And and their response in verse 22 exposes the reality that the teaching they were accustomed to not only lacked truth, it also lacked power. Look what it says. It reads that they were astonished at his teaching. Your translations, they were amazed at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority. And then he drops in this thing where he says, and not as the scribes. Contrasted. Jesus' teaching contrasted with those of the scribes. In other words, Jesus taught with a level of conviction that they were not used to. Most people were illiterate in those days, and when they heard Jesus teach, their minds were blown. In fact, that idea of amazing, or they were amazed, they were astonished, is actually the word we would say they were blown away. Literally, just their minds are blown with what and how He's teaching. He taught as someone who had dominion, as someone who had rule. He had right, He had privilege, and He had power. You ever heard somebody preach like that? Where just there's just so much power. They have such authority over the Word of God. Well, it's understanding why Jesus had authority over the Word of God. He was the Word that became flesh. The scribes taught tradition. In fact, they would often quote from other scribes. Well, Jesus didn't quote anybody but himself. A distinguishing feature of Mark's gospel is his references to people's emotional reactions. And as we move through this gospel of Mark, over and over and over again, you're going to see that word astonished or amazed or blown away by the teaching of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 7, after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it reads in verse 28 that they were amazed because he spoke as one having authority. My question is, how do we know when what we're hearing is from God? Because there's a lot of people who can stand up and scream, and they they can look like they got a lot of power, right? They're charismatic. Man, they, they can deliver a line. But how do we know when we're hearing, when what we're hearing is from God? Well, I think one of the reasons is we're going to be convicted. All Scripture, Paul tells Timothy, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, adequate, complete for every good work. And so how do we know that what we're hearing is God's Word? 1 John chapter 4 reminds us to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You don't have to go far to hear them in our day. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, Paul says of those in Berea 
He says that these, speaking of the Bereans, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness. It says examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. If I brought my other, one of my other Bibles inside that Bible is the Bible that I was given when I got baptized in 1986. And inside the cover of that is Acts 17.11 where my brother-in-law who led me to Christ said, don't be a spoon-fed Christian. And he used that verse right there, Acts 17.11. Listen, we are, we are in the church. And I'm not talking about you guys. I'm talking about in the church we are a bunch of spoon-fed followers of Jesus. We are, we are feeding on a once-a-week nutritional feeding, spiritual nutrition. Are we examining the Scriptures to see if these things are true? Or are we good with being spoon-fed? Those in Capernaum had not only been spoon-fed, they had a spiritual diet of religion with no power. No power. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 4 that his speech and his message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And those in Capernaum, as well as those in Jacksonville, are often resting in the wisdom of men. As a result, there is little to no change in the lives of those who say they profess Christ. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, Paul says, The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And Jesus, Jesus' teaching was a sharp contrast from what the scribes were teaching. Jesus' Jesus's teaching was absolute. It wasn't arbitrary. It was logical, not evasive. It was essential, not trivial. It was clear, not confusing. His teaching was commanding, not suggesting. He taught as one with power. And while it amazed the people, look what it did to the demons. And immediately, verse 23, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out. Unclean spirit is a, really a New Testament synonym for a demon or a fallen angel. What is a demon doing in the synagogue? <laughs> you ever think about that? What, what's a demon doing in the synagogue? It goes to show you, can be, and, and just because you're in church doesn't mean everybody in there is saved. Amen. What Amen. Place to watch. Beg your pardon? What, what better place to watch the people? Amen. Amen. Listen, when God's word is not heralded and explained, you will have a congregation of demons. Stop right there. Say that again. <laughs> when God's word is not heralded and explained, you will have a congregation of demons. 
You know, in Matthew, Jesus says, uh, it's to me one of the most sobering texts where he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But I didn't, what? I never knew you. Our churches are full of people who say, Lord, Lord, but they don't know Christ. They have not surrendered their lives to Christ. They're just, they're good with you be you. Uh, Listen, God loves you just the way you are, but He is not going to leave you the way you are. And it is only going to take place as we herald, as we proclaim, as we teach and preach the Word of God, not man's wisdom. Excuse me. Yeah. Can you explain that with with that last statement? Which one? The last statement. We are not, we don't gather here, even in this synagogue, to hear from Brad. We come to gather to hear from God. We have a lot of gifted communicators in the church today. And that's good. That's fine. But be listening. Is what he's saying from the Word? And I'll take you back to Acts 17.11, where Paul says they were more noble He says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They examined the Scripture. They didn't just hear from the preacher. They didn't just hear from the teacher. They didn't just hear from the minister, the priest, whatever. They examined the Scriptures to see if these things were true. Now let me ask you, how do you know if something's true? Bring this chair over here. I tell you, hey, this chair, I'm 200 pounds. Anybody else that heavy? No. Yeah. All right. Some of you may be a little more than that. But if I said, hey, this chair will hold you. It's built in such a way that it will hold you. How do you know if that's true? Sit down. Sit down. You have to test it. And yet, week after week after week, and let me just tell you, I can be guilty of this as too. I can hear a good message from my pastor. I can walk out and go, Amen, man, that's solid, man. Hmm, really got me. But am I going back and examining what he taught? Am I taking what he taught and actually putting it to the test? That's what we're called to do. And those in, in, in Capernaum were just sitting back, listening to the teaching of the scribes, the wisdom that they all had. And yet Jesus shows up on the scene and it's a different message. It's one that has authority. It has power. That's the message. It doesn't come, as Paul says, with plausible words of wisdom. But it comes in a demonstration of teaching the Word. Yes, Dave? An example of that might be where Jesus said, you heard it said that. Yes, yes. And I can imagine when He was teaching with authority, he was telling them the truth, not you, the way you said it, not what the scribes told them, but he was, he was telling them the truth. And, and I've been in rooms where someone stood up and you could feel the authority yeah. in that person. Yeah. Yeah. So that must yeah. have been a It's amazing that they could change that fast yeah. Yeah. from loving them to killing them. Yeah. Well, I love where Paul says when he's instructing Timothy. And he's giving us, giving us as men instruction that we would accurately divide the word. 
that we would actually be able to handle it like you handle a fork in your hand. That we would be able to use the Word of God, not your wisdom, not your experience, not that those aren't okay, but it better lead with the Word of God and you better use it like you use one of your best tools in your drawer. And so there is, and and boy, let me tell you how many people hear that verse and they just think it doesn't apply to them. It applies to the pastor. It applies to the Sunday school teacher. No, it applies to you and I. Otherwise, we're spoon-fed Christians sitting in week after week after week. Or like little babies, just give me the meat. Give me me the milk, you know. We're We're to get in this stuff. We're to examine it. We're to let it not just... Get in our head, we're to let it to get through us. Get get in it. I say it all the time. It doesn't matter how many times you've been through the Bible. What matters is how many times the Bible's been through you. Demons, as a result of Jesus' teaching, the demon was not only exposed, the demon was so terrified he cried out. This demon is screaming through the man's vocal cords. The demon is terrified at the presence of the Son of God and his proclamation of truth. He is so terrified, he reveals himself. And you wonder, what is a demon doing in the synagogue? Listen, he's, he's, he's covert. <laughs> he's there, you know, just looking for opportunities. Probably saying amen to all the, the bad scriptures. Exactly. That's exactly right. Well, is, That's is exactly that, right. Is that like... Uh... And Job, when uh, Satan went up and asked God what he was doing, he said he was walking around on the earth. Yes. I think that's a great visual to think about that. Yeah. Our enemy, what, it it prowls around like a little raccoon or a a roaring lion seeking what? Someone to tickle? No, he's seeking to devour you. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. The reality is that demons often hide in religious places that teach false doctrine. Demons often hide in religious places where they teach false doctrine. Think about what's going on in this text right here. Jesus is declaring, He is teaching, and this demon just, he can't handle it. He can't handle it. And he literally screams out. And what terrified this demon was the affirmation of God's word. It was the declaration, the heralding, the proclaiming of the truth. Demons knew they had developed a false system of religion that was highly successful in Israel. They are disguised as what? Angels of light. They oftentimes blend right in. It it would be similar to if somebody were to go into a liberal church today, a a real man of God went to an extremely liberal church and started to quote scripture. They'd start howling like, you know, wanting to stone them. Oh, yeah. Basically, it's no difference. Some of the guys we were talking about even before, I know some other guys who've gone into those kind of, been invited to those kind of churches. And they've been basically told, don't, don't go here, don't go there. And, that, and literally those pastors have gone, no, I'm not going to do that. 
I'm, I'm going to teach what I'm here to teach. And boy, they don't like that. They don't like that. Jesus said of them in John 8, 44, You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Dave, as you said, the devil knows the word far better than you and I know it. The devil knows the word far better than you and I know it. He is one of the best theologians you'll ever find. And as a result, Jesus is teaching the demon was not only exposed, the demon was terrified. Demons hate the truth because the truth exposes demonic deception. Demons... uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed that that demons are are never mentioned in the Old Testament. Demons are never mentioned in the Old Testament. They were there, but they were working behind the scenes. Listen, demons are fine. They're perfectly fine with religion as long as human ideas are being taught. And so number one, demons are terrified by the affirmation of God's Word. Number two, they are terrified by the arrival of God's judgment. The demon says, look at verse 24, For what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? In other words, what business do we have with you? In 1 John 3, 8, it says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And the demon says, have you come to destroy us? Have you come to judge us? Notice this demon speaks for all demons by using the word us. What have you to do with us? The demon says, I know who you are. Listen, the demons knew who he was. They said the Holy One of God. Because the demons knew the Word of God they also know the plan of God. Since they... Than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Right. Yep. Yep. Who are the instructors? So demons know the plan of God. They know where they're headed is to the lake of fire. They know this. And so what they're asking is, is this the time you've come to destroy us? You understand? The fear that must be gripping them. Is this the time you've come to destroy us? And instead of destroying him, Jesus rebukes the demon by saying in verse 25, Be silent and come out of him. Jesus didn't want any demonic promotions. He he basically says, shut up. He simply commands the demon to shut up and come out of the man. And Mark writes in verse 26 that the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And so demons are terrified by the affirmation of God's word. They are terrified by the arrival of God's judgment. And finally, demons are terrified by the authority of God's word. Verse 27, Mark writes this. He says, They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, What is this? What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, 
and they obey Him. I don't know about you, but I remember the night, the very night that I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I grew up in the church. I was there every two or three times a week. Was involved in youth. Well, in 1981, in June of 1981, my brother-in-law invites me to a First Baptist Crusade in Houston, Texas at Tully Stadium. And I'm sitting at the top row of that stadium, Texas football stadium, high school football, probably seated 30,000. And this place is packed. You know who gave the message that night? Rick Stanley. Rick Stanley, ever heard of that name? Rick Stanley was Elvis Presley's stepbrother. And after Elvis died, Rick Stanley came to Christ. And he's given the message that night. And I'm hearing something I've never heard in my life. And you might say, how could that possibly be? You grew up in the church. These ears didn't work. (laughs) I didn't have spiritual ears. I didn't have a heart that was ready to hear the gospel. And that night I heard the gospel for the first time. And there was no turning back. It was, I'm in. I'm in. And that's what's happening here. They are hearing the gospel for the first time with power, with authority. And by His own authority, Jesus commands the demons to come out. Jesus is showing that He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the Savior. He is in charge. He has the power that He needs to break the bondage that Satan possesses. And listen to this. If we're to come to Jesus Christ as the new King... We must believe that He can exercise power over the current ruler of this world. I think oftentimes as Christians, we look at what's going on in the world and we're like this. We're just crashing as if God's not on the throne. (laughs) He has the power to overcome the enemy. He's just waiting. He's just waiting. With a word, even the unclean spirits obeyed Him. Jesus had complete control of the demons because of His sovereignty. And as a result, verse 28 reads that at once His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The people's reaction to this exorcism was an important part of Mark's narrative. The witnesses expressed alarm as well as amazement at Jesus' display in word and in deed. And as I wrap this up, I just want to kind of throw out a couple ideas. And it's just kind of, I always think, how do we, what do we do with this, wrestling with these ideas? When I hear the Word of God, am I attracted to it or am I repulsed by it? Do I hunger for the Word? Jesus said, man cannot live on bread alone, but what? On every word that comes from the mouth of God. When I disciple a guy, when I start discipling a guy, I want to know what is his spiritual diet look like? Are we spending time in the Word or are we like, I just don't have enough time for that? Number two, am I amazed or am I afraid of God's power? Am I amazed or am I afraid of God's power? And you know what? I'm both. I'm both amazed and afraid of God's power. You know, think about this. Go out at night sometime. Think of Psalm 19 that says, the, <clears throat> the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day by day, 
it reveals his knowledge. So as we look into the sky, does that amaze you? Yes. The rocks will cry out. Exactly. Exactly. Finally, am I comforted or terrified of God's judgment? Am I comforted or am I terrified of God's judgment? I hope you're comforted. I hope you're comforted. If you're terrified, let's talk. All right. Dave, you mind closing us in prayer? Thank you, guys.